Morning. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in a time of praise. It was cool, as I've been thinking about the sermon, all of the ways in which God has been speaking to me through these songs, and a lot of the key themes that came out in the songs, you know, Jay and I really didn't connect, but there's a lot of um, uh, things that we sung about that uh, really connect with what we're talking about today, so uh, that was so encouraging for me. I'd almost want him to come up and do the whole set again after the sermon because of the connections, but um, I'm thankful for that. It's been a real joy to be going through the book of Luke. Uh, the first sermon in the series, Pastor Matt talked about how uh, he really wanted all of us to dig into the book of Luke, to really read it and learn something new. There's a lot of things within the book that uh, we see, oh yeah, I, I kind of already know that. Um, and so it's been a blessing to be able to go through that myself and to look more in depth at this specific passage. So as we've done in the past, as I've done in the past, I want to highlight uh, the role that each one of us plays when we listen to a sermon. First off, it's my responsibility that I effectively articulate the truth of the passage with clarity and humility, and our collective responsibility is that we ask the Holy Spirit to transform us by this truth so that we can respond in obedience. So each of you, if you look into your bulletin, have sermon notes, and you'll notice that the Sermon notes um, are blank, uh, and that was intentional. As we go through this passage, um, as, we, as we talk about the truth of what it was presenting to its readers, I really want you to highlight and make some notes of things that God is teaching you and, and the ways in which he's pricking your heart to respond. Also, uh, please get out your Bibles because we'll be spending a lot of time in your Bibles um, I'll be reading from the ESV, so um, just FYI, there are Bibles in the chairs, those are NIV, so some of the words will be a little bit different, but uh, we're going to be looking in, in, into God's Word and digging into that, looking at a couple of references, so please have your Bibles open or your phone apps going that have your Bible, we want to we make sure that we're focusing on that today. So before we start, let's pray, and we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It's so easy to forget what an impact the Bible has on our lives. The impact that your story has, has on, on human history. And we're so thankful that we get to read about this part in history. Uh, a key part in history where you initiated something great in your plan of salvation for the world. And we look forward to talking about that and listening to it. And may you speak to our hearts as we read, as we study, as we listen. God, may you reveal stuff for us that we need to be obedient to and that your spirit would actively move during the sermon. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So before we explore the specific section uh, that we're focusing on, let's remind ourselves of what Luke is trying to communicate. So quickly flip to Luke 1.1, the very beginning. And I want to highlight two key points in verses 1 and verses 4 that give us a little bit of a, uh, a reminder of what Luke is trying to do. Now, a lot of this is a little bit of um, echoing what Pastor Matt talked about a few weeks ago. But I think it's important that we have this in our mind when we're reading these um, portions. Verse 1, 1, and I'll also read 1, 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So the narrative of things accomplished. The word translated accomplished is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And in each of the references, there's this idea of being completely convinced. So there's already a lot of information out at that point. I think Pastor Matt talked a little bit about that. It's likely that Luke had been getting his information from Matthew and Mark when writing this. So he had that stuff in his mind. So he adds a little bit to that. But he's sharing that there's so much evidence. There's so many things that show that all of these things actually happened. Then verse 4 says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. On the surface, it kind of seems as though it's just an echo of what was said in verse 1. But I think it's important to highlight the word certainty. Again, a, a word used very infrequently, but it seems to imply safety and security. Truth on this level, the truth of what has happened is transforming. It leads to something that should change us. The example that I was thinking of is when we, when we know how our bodies work and the different things that we need within our body to be effective, right? Ideally, we exercise, we, we eat better because the truth of what our body needs to be healthy transforms us. And this certainty, and it creates safety, right? It creates a beneficial, more of a healthy body. And so, two points. Luke wants his readers to know that the things that have happened right before the eyes of many eyewitnesses are provable, undeniable, and worth believing. And secondly, we can rest assured that Jesus, in light of what he did, is worth following. And it is good for us to follow. For the rest of the sermon series, and in your time studying Luke, filter what you hear through what Luke has shared in his goal. I will include the fact that he also wrote the book of Acts, and the same theme goes right through the book of Acts too. So remember that the intended goal continues, and it's how God wanted to communicate. And God is a God of clarity. He's making it very clear. I understand there's a lot of things that we can't understand about God but in these passages, he is showing us the things that we can understand and need to understand. All right, so let's go to our passage, Luke 2, 21. And we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to read through 40. Now, you can either read along with me, or if, you do, you, if you're more of an audible person, close your eyes and just listen to this, uh, this passage. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem who was called Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he stood up with he, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we just got done finishing the Christmas story. And we get to this point where we're eight days into Jesus' life. And at this time, he is circumcised and then afterwards is publicly given his name. So names are really significant in Israel. Uh, if you go and read a lot of the Old Testament, we see situations where uh, the name of a child was very uh, de uh, determining of what had happened. You think of uh, Isaac, right? To laugh. Isaac means to laugh because um, his mother laughed when she found out that she was going to have him. Um, and I think Jacob means something like to grasp because he grasped Esau's heel on his, when, they were, when they were born. So names are really significant. And by this point, uh, names tended to be a little bit more connected to uh, ancestry. So if you had a father named John, you would be John. And if you were a John, you would name your kid John. So that was kind of the transition that happened. And we see that with John and Zechariah. People were really confused. Why are you going to name him John? There's no one in your family named John. Why, why would you do that? And John was a very um, important word for what God was going to do with him. 
Um, I was just going to read this really quick. Uh, Luke 1, 15. For he will be great before the Lord. And that's basically what John means. We're going to call him John because before the Lord he will be great. He will do great things. He will follow through with what God is asking him to do. And he has a huge role in the ushering in of Jesus. And we see that Mary was told what Jesus' name would be before they knew that he was coming. So his name has importance. And that's something that we can see how God is starting to do what he is planning to do. And that name signifying that. So as we continue... Let's go back to um, our start of the verse. And through uh, 21 through 24, uh, we see all of these uh, terms that we're really not used to. Um, At the end of the days, he was circumcised. Um, He was named after his circumcision. Um, They went to the temple for purification, um, according to the law of Moses. Uh, They brought him up to present him at the temple. And there's this reference to every male who opens up the womb to be called holy before the Lord. So there's all of these kind of references to things that God had told his people to do back in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. And we won't get into that too much, but I think that it's an important concept to see how Jesus was following the law and how his parents were very much dedicated to following what God had called his people to do. Now, we know that Jesus' deity sets him apart as holy from the beginning. We know that right from the beginning. The ceremonies that took place were not necessarily for him, but throughout Luke and many of the other Gospels, for that matter, we continually see Jesus following and fulfilling everything that God had asked for his people. He was showing himself to be worthy to his people, and that he, again, is worth following. I don't want to belabor this point too long, but I want to encourage each of you, again, to go back to Genesis as Exodus and Leviticus, and you can see what laws they're actually following, following at that time. I want to focus most of today on verses 25 through 38. And so this would be the two prophets, basically, Simeon and Anna. And Luke introduces these two individuals to us who have these prophetic interactions with the infant, Jesus, as Luke continues to add layers to his overall purpose. So first we meet Simeon when they come to Jerusalem, and we learn a few things about him. Number one, if you look at 25, uh, this was a man who was righteous and devout. So the word here used as righteous is used quite a few times in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to God. It's uh, a capital letter is given to the word, and so it's a name for God. Sometimes it's used for a specific person, as we see in this situation, and sometimes just used as a general term. I want you to quickly flip over to Romans 3 for a second. And I want to read something. I want to read uh, 10 through 12. Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. 
together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I'm confused. How can we believe what Paul is saying? He's actually referencing a psalm. But how can we believe what Paul or what Luke is saying about Simeon, if this is to be true? How can he be called righteous and devout if no one is righteous? No one understands. How can that be? So just go over one more chapter, Romans 4. And I'm going to read a couple of verses. If you really want a nice in-depth answer, read 1 through 12. I would make a note of that self if you want, because it, it's a more extensive uh, answer to my question. But we get the point by just these two verses. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Luke is highlighting this idea that righteousness is not based off of the things that we do. He wasn't righteous because he had this huge list of all these positive things that he did, right? The Bible says that he was righteous because he believed. And he believed with absolute uh, certainty. I'm sure at times he had doubts, but he believed with absolute certainty that God was the God of the universe and that he was to be followed. So when you see righteousness, think of it like that. See it in the light of how these individuals believed in God and because of it were so transformed by that belief. So he was also devout. Now again, this is a less common word in the New Testament and it's only used by Luke. Luke's the only one that uses, uses this word in the entire New Testament. And he uses it both in Luke and in Acts. And it seems to denote what one commentator calls a religious conscientiousness. So what that means practically can be seen in some of the upcoming verses of what he does, but think of it like this. Think about this deep devotion to the word, to what God has said, and beginning to be committed to continually keeping your eyes open to how the truth of the word manifests itself in our world. He, he knew the word. He, he knew it front and back. And he was constantly looking and observing, how is this going to play out in the world, in my life personally and in the world? And that was devotion. Devoted to constantly seeing and applying God's word, God's truth, what he had said, and how that was playing out in history and how that was playing out in his life. And this leads us to what the second part that we, we learn about him is he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, it seems very clear that Luke is referencing a couple of passages in chapters 40 through 66 in Isaiah. Realistically, we should have a really good idea of Isaiah if we truly want to understand Luke because Luke uses so many references to that. Um, I wanted just to show you really quick a couple of them. So uh, you don't have to go there, but you can make this reference. This is Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. And I'm also going to read 
um, 10 and 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her, well, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that, she's, that, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Verse 10, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them on his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So these are the types of things. And th- th- this is nothing. There, again, if you look through 40 through 66, you're going to see tons of references like that. But when we talk about the consolation of, it, of Israel, that's what we're referencing. This idea that at some point, all of this will change. For years, the Jewish people have continued to live under great oppression and have the subsequent longing to be free. And it's not just this physical oppression by other nations, but it was also a spiritual oppression as a result of their unrepentant sin and in severe cases, their apostasy. So to many in that day, this consolation was to manifest itself in this political or military uprising initiated by Yahweh. That's how he had done it in the past. That's how he had made his his name known to the other nations, was to come in and completely wipe them out. And that's kind of what they were looking for. Like, you're going to comfort us by going and destroying all of these people. But we know that God had a different plan. The third thing, and very important, the Spirit of God was upon him. It's important to remember that at this time, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit was not yet in place, right? That doesn't happen until Pentecost in Acts. So this is happening before that. So this acknowledgement that God is with him in spirit is very important. From the time of the Old Testament, people like Moses, David, and more recently, Zechariah and John the Baptist in the womb, the Spirit was resting on individuals for a time as God fulfilled his purposes for his people throughout history. And Luke wants his readers to know that the upcoming words being proclaimed by Simeon are from God himself. And God in his mercy communicates through his spirit that Simeon would be able to see before his eyes the Messiah. And again, I go back to this devoutness, this righteousness, And I believe that God has rewarded Simeon in some sense to his obedience, to his righteousness, again, his belief in God. And he's rewarded for it. That he gets to see, he gets to see the the Savior of the world before he dies. So the Holy Spirit guides him, takes him to the temple, guides him directly to where Jesus is. And it inspires this song that he sings. So 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. 
So a couple things to note here about starting with verse 29, right? So Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Luke is using a common tool to remind his readers of what is coming. And I just want to read a little bit of a snippet of an article um, that I read that describes this better than I could, I could share it. Simeon begins his song with a Hebraic reference in his use of the Greek word now. The hymn, the hymn or the song begins with an emphatic now. Throughout the infancy narratives, there is a sense that the present moment is the time for salvation. For behold, from now on, which is uh, a reference to Mary's uh, song, unto you this day, unto you is born this day, obviously the angels to the shepherds, right? The sense of now and today is a Hebrew idiom that is reflected in the Psalms and also emphasized in when covenants were made with his people. That now, it starts now. This is happening now. We are proceeding now. This is the day. And so we see this initiation that Jesus' ministry is ready to happen right now. We also see in this passage of this idea of you letting your servant depart in peace. We see how at one point the Holy Spirit had told Simeon that he would be able to see the Messiah. And now that it happened, now that Jesus had kept, now that God has kept his word, he's like, I can go. You, you have kept your promise, God. You have been faithful to your word. And he says that according to your word. He has been faithful to his word and faithful to what he said will happen. And there's a peace. There's a peace that comes from God's faithfulness to fulfilling his promises and to his word. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This idea of see, sight, right? Dual purpose. We have physical sight. What, what Simeon actually saw, he saw the child. But he also had this spiritual sight. Now, we're going to see this scene play out in Acts too, right? Do you guys remember the story of Saul? When Jesus comes before Saul, what happens? He loses his physical sight as a representation that he had lost his spiritual sight. And when he gains spiritual sight... Right When he gained that understanding of Jesus being the actual Messiah, the one that he was persecuting against, what did he get back? His physical sight. And there's stories like this all over the place. And Luke is just again highlighting how Simeon has seen, I have seen your salvation. Pastor Matt again reminded us that Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. And Joshua means the Lord saves. So this is Simeon playing off the name of Jesus and saying, I have seen, again, dual meaning. That's his name, right? I have seen salvation, the Lord's salvation. It's right here. It's his name, the Lord's salvation. But he has also seen the spiritual implications of what that means. Again, this idea of God's salvation um, is referenced in Isaiah 52.10. I'm not going to read it, but if you want to go back and look at that, that's just kind of a good verse to see what Simeon is probably referring to within this statement. So let's move to 31. Again, so for my, 
For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people in Israel. So this is the song's finale. The inclusion of the human race in God's plan for salvation, which has also been hinted at in other places. But now we kind of see the full measure of this playing out. And this idea of light being presented again, we see this, we see this all the time. Um, I'm going to read for you uh, Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. So this is Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. See if this sounds familiar. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Some translations translate nations to Gentiles. Just FYI. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. So when Simeon says this statement, again, the readers are going back to Isaiah when they read that. The world is in a state of darkness, and God is bringing light through his salvation, not just to the people of Israel, who are also in darkness in many ways. They're going through a lot of oppression at this time. But that lightness would come to everyone which is something that we get to benefit as Gentiles. And we can see that Luke is confirming what God had set in place, and in many ways, unlike anyone had thought. Luke 24, again, you don't have to go there, but I just want to read this for you. So this is the story of the road to Emmaus, all right? So Jesus has died. They had just heard rumors that he had raised from the dead. And so Jesus comes upon these men, and listen, listen to what they say. Right? These are people that spent time with Jesus. Um, I'll start in 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing, right? The sight thing here. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you guys are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. The one of them, uh, Cleopas, answered him, are you only a visitor, Jerusalem, who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. Listen to this, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to be the one, right? There's this idea that, like, you know, it doesn't look like he was the one. Like, he was an incredible person. He was an incredible prophet. But we kind of hoped he, he was the one. And later in the passage, it's not until they have communion that their eyes are actually opened up and they kind of see this. Um, but it wasn't understood, like, how this was going to play out. And we reap the benefit because we have the entire New Testament. So we, and we've talked about it all our lives in church. But they didn't see that. And Simeon is confirming this. The plan for God's purpose to bring salvation to the entire world. And in verse 33, 
in Mary and Joseph's response, we kind of see their own journey through what does this mean, right? The angel had come to both of them and shared some general things of what were going to happen. But in light of Simeon saying these things, it says Mary and Joseph marveled at what he had said. Because they're still going through their mind like, what is this, what is this really going to mean? What is this going to mean for us? How is this going to impact our lives? What, what does it mean to be the, the mother and the father of the Savior of the world, of the, of the chosen Messiah? Like, are we going to be able to be on thrones and, like, this is going to be great? They themselves didn't know about that. And I think that some of the things that Simeon said to them, they're kind of like, okay, interesting. And so they're going through that, that journey themselves. So as we go to verses 34 and 35, Simeon gives a little bit more directly to the parents, actually specifically more to Mary. So Simeon blessed them and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So I didn't look into this. It's kind of a question that I still have as I, as I think about this passage. Why Simeon went directly to Mary. The word says that that's what had happened. But for whatever reason, he goes directly to Mary and says these things, by the way. And this, these aren't pleasant things to hear. This isn't an encouragement, encouraging thing to hear. His entrance into this world will mean the fall and rising of many in Israel. Right? We, we would think that, like, no, like, he's coming in. Like, this is, this is good for all of us. And Simeon's like, this isn't going to be good for some because of the devotion that he requires. He is a sign to be oppressed. He is the sign that, that God is doing what he said he would do. Um, sign, a lot of the times, is used within the miracle stories. So when a sign was done, what were the Pharisees doing? They were setting aside. That's, that's nothing, Right? So even when they were showing signs, he was being opposed. And then he makes a little mark. Most of your Bibles have it in parentheses. Um, a sword shall pierce your soul. Again, like this isn't like a really nice, pleasant thing to hear for Mary. But I think that this is referencing the torment and the grief that she has to go through in the years down the road. And so Simeon's laying it out there and being like, a couple things that you have to be aware of. And I think that this shows us that Simeon did have a pretty good idea of like what the implications are going forward. A lot of the times we could, we could be like, well, is Simeon thinking that he's going to be this military power that comes in? I believe based on these things, Simeon has more insight from the Spirit of what this really means for the history of, of the world. So he says that these are going to happen, the fall and the rise, the sign to be oppressed, so that thoughts of many hearts would be discerning. Jesus knows, God knows, that when this takes place, when the Holy Spirit has a permanent indwelling in each of our hearts every single day, and it's not this on again, off again, on again, off again, that our hearts would be brought to the surface. 
where our hearts are at will be brought into light. And that's a key thing that happens because of what Jesus has done. That devotion, that righteousness, all of those things come more to the surface because of the work that the Spirit does in each one of us. So then Luke transitions to the next prophet, all right? And this is another stranger, this time a female named Anna. And again, I'm, I'm going to go through this pretty quick because really what's happening is, is Luke is just paralleling another story. Because if you, if you look at them side by side, it's just a different way of saying some of the same things, right? He highlights her righteousness and her devoutness, that she believed, and right, that conscientiousness. She went to the temple every single day fasting and praying. Nonstop, constantly there, constantly looking for what God was going to do. Um, her name is Anna, which again is basically the Greek word for Hannah, right? And Luke doing what Luke does, he's referencing the story of Hannah and Samuel um, in, in highlighting her response. And then this goes into... Um, the last couple of verses, which again, we won't spend more time on, they're really just a nice platform into what we'll be looking at um, in the next part of the sermon series. That, again, remember, he followed the law and he's confirming who he is and who his identity is and that he is worthy to be followed. And then we see Jesus' spiritual growth, which again, I'm, I'm excited to, to listen to um, the next sermon about Jesus being at the temple and the parents losing him and having to go back. Um, it's, a, it's a great story, so I'm looking forward to that. All right. So that's our passage, all right? Hopefully, each of you have kind of had some things that have come up in your mind, some notes that you've kind of taken on how God is moving through this, through this experience. For me, going through this, there's three main things. There's a lot of things that, that you really wrestle with when you go through this, but there's a lot of things that be revealed, that were revealed to me. I'm blown away at how God meticulously puts his plan into place and how he makes it known to his people. It's a plan that's difficult for many to understand, which I think that we can all we, we can all empathize with. Um, I see myself as someone who, uh, in not so many words, basically saying, "Here's my plan, God. I need you to get on board with my plan now. I need you to start doing the things that I need you to do to make this happen." And usually doesn't end very well. But when God's plan, when we're getting on board with God's plan, that's when things really effectively start happening. That's when we're connected to God because we're so dependent on him. We're like, oh, I see what you were doing there. I see what was happening. And we also, in kind of a selfish way, we kind of benefit from it too. We, we reap the benefits of the, the ways in which God has prepared the way for his plan. I was also really intrigued by this idea of righteousness and devoutness. I thought, I thought that that was absolutely 
interesting to me because it's really easy for my mind to want to go to this place of deeds and um, all those things. Um, Stephanie and I were talking a little bit about the, the two individuals who have recent, recently kind of left the church, Joshua Harris. Um, I don't remember the other guy. He's a writer for Hillsong. Um, I can't remember his name. Um, but, but these two people who have been like pillars in the faith, just gone. Just gone. How does that happen? And I think that this idea of righteousness and devotion really encouraged me through that. That were these people that were just seeking to do things because it's the right thing to do? Or was it because they truly believed in God and what God had said? So being able to understand that really helped me. And the other thing that really stood out was, again, this reminder of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy for me to take for granted the fact that we have the Holy Spirit working in us, constantly speaking to us, right? New Testament says it's very clear that we have the ability to quench the Spirit. So when the Spirit says something, yeah, I'm not, yeah, no thanks, I don't need that right now, or I don't need to go there right now. We have that ability. And I want to be more in tune through prayer, through time in the Word, because that's the thing that gets my mind focused back on what God wants and what he, what he is looking for. So again, I was really encouraged by this passage and being able to study it and go through it. Um, please ask yourself, ask, ask God to teach you what you need to do. Because this is going to look different, right? This is, this is my application, right? It's, it's going to look different for each of you. And there are going to be truths that stuck out for you that are going to lead to how each of you respond. And we're, we're responsible for that. We're responsible for being in tune with what God is calling. So write that stuff down. Talk to someone, whether it's a spouse or a friend or another person within the church. Tell someone. It, it helps you keep accountable. Tell someone what you want to do based on what you've heard today and what God has been teaching you today. So let's pray and we'll close up. Father, again, we thank you for your word. The truth, the stories, seeing your plan happen is humble. It's humbling. We are humbled by it. Help us each to See what you are asking us to do in response to this. Help it to be not the seed that just gets spread out and withers up and dies. May this seed, the truth of your passage, produce fruit that transforms ourselves and transforms our lives and affects the people that we are in contact with. We thank you that, that you are a God who we can believe in, that we can depend on. We thank you that you're always there, even when we drop the ball, even when we try to do things our own way. You are always there. You are faithful to your promises. You are faithful to your word. And we praise you for that. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.